You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody, welcome to Humanize Me, where every week or so we talk with some wonderful person about what they're learning and then try to figure out how we can use it to build better relationships and to make things better for other people or just plain enhance our sense of wonder and gratitude for the improbable privilege of being alive and conscious in the first place. Yeah, we're trying to humanize ourselves. And so I'm Bart Campolo. I'm the host of this podcast. And for the moment, at least, I'm the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles. Um, And I say for the moment, because as most of you know, I've been uh, working with students at USC for the past three years as pretty much a full-time volunteer, mainly because I'm not a very good fundraiser. I mean, I'm working on it. I'm trying to figure it out. But in the meantime... Uh, it's, it's, it's not looking good for me, but the, my students, the students who are members of USC's Secular Student Fellowship have, uh, have sort of idealistically launched a campaign on change.org. They're trying to, they, they've got this online petition on change.org that says hire a secular chaplain at USC. And they're calling on the president of the school to, to hire somebody to do what I do here. And, uh, I'm not sure it's going to happen in time to keep me on campus next semester. But I got to tell you, every now and then I go and look at the petition and especially at the, at the comments that the, the, the notes that people add to when they, when they sign it. And it's really encouraging to see how many people, not just at USC, but all around the world are sort of sending the message that, Hey, we value this kind of ministry. We like the idea of putting somebody in the lives of young people, to proactively reach out and help them build community and show them how to connect with each other and challenge them to make, to, to recognize that this life is the only one that if this life is the only one that they have, that they need to make the most of it. And the way to make the most of it is by loving each other and by reaching out and trying to make things better for other people. And again, by cultivating a sense of wonder and gratitude. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, honestly, they asked me, they said, will you mention our petition on your podcast and encourage your listeners to sign on and tell their friends? And so there it is. Go to change.org, hire a secular chaplain at USC and, and you'll find it. And, um, yeah, that would be cool. I mean, it's, it, if nothing else, it's been hugely affirming to, for me to know that there are so many people that value the work that we're doing on campus. Um, and speaking of campus. Like, I, like, and I want to cut right to the chase. I, I, I want to talk this week. I, I'm, I'm going to share with you my conversation with Lisa Wade. And Lisa Wade is a college professor. But more importantly, at this moment, she's the author of a book called American Hookup, The New Culture of Sex on Campus. And Lisa came to USC and gave a talk about this book uh, that I went to and, and my students went to. And we were just blown away with how... The, the way she kind of pulls back the curtain on campus culture and shows how sexuality is working on campuses and how it's changed and how it's really messing with people. And, and you might say, well, listen, I don't have a college kid. I'm not in college myself. What does that matter to me? But what Lisa's going to argue, or Lisa argued in her book, is that What's ha- the, the, the hookup culture that's emerged on college campuses is now bleeding over and really shaping the 
all kinds of things in our in our society. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, like, I just got to tell you, I loved my conversation with her. Um, she's like my new special pal. I just think she's the greatest. And so, yeah, I, I should stop talking about it and just let you get to it. And, and, and we're going to get to that conversation. If you're curious, yes. On the other side of that conversation, if you make it to the other side of that conversation, I've got a cool Ingersoll quote for you. All right, that's it. Let's get on with it. Here's me and Lisa Wade. Do you feel like you are the world expert on American hookup culture? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> I, I've spent a you lot be. of time, a lot of time on it, and I've thought about it a lot. I've listened really, really hard, and I've traveled now to something like 45 schools. So, uh, yeah, I imagine so. Um, and when- and I attribute it to so many people being so open with me and letting me incorporate their stories and perspectives into my, my worldview on it. When did you figure out that there was something going on in sexuality on college campuses that was worth studying or that, that needed to be a story that needed to be told? When did you figure out like there's something happening here? Yeah. Um, that, so I was okay. So I was on the tenure track at Occidental College, and when you're on the tenure track, you don't turn down an opportunity to publish something. And I was asked by an old mentor, um, if who was putting together a, an anthology about sexuality throughout the life course, if I would want to contribute a, a chapter on sexuality after divorce, because I had actually done my second master's thesis on that. And, uh, but I, I wasn't studying that anymore. There was no basis on which I could claim to be able to do that. But I, but I was sort of like, well, I'm on the tenure track. I've been asked to write something. I should pitch something else. And so I pitched college students and I was really surprised that he said yes, because I figured what college professor doesn't have access to college students like this can't be, um, that you would think, you would think it was almost overstudied because they're right there. Yeah. Right. And, um, and he, he took me up on it. And so the first round of data collection I did was for that chapter. And it was after that first round that I realized that there was something really special and important um, in that data that needed to be shared more widely. Uh, and and the, the, the research I was seeing come out about it, and also in a particularly the pop cultural conversation, was um, not doing justice to the students I was seeing and the stories they were telling. And so what did you, you know, what did you figure out? Like, like as I, I, you know, and and what's funny is like, I don't, these podcasts, I usually don't actually interview people. I just talk with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I kind of just want to talk with you because I read the book. Like I, I mean, and I'll, I'll put links to the hidden brain article um, or, or hidden brain podcast. So there's people want like that kind of like broad overview thing. Sure. Cause I felt like you did a masterful job in 30 minutes of after reading the book of, of sort of summarizing a lot of the things that you had learned. Mm-hmm. But like what, what kind of I'm, I'm interested in is, is there's, there's something like one of the thesis points that you made was that it's not like college students are having all this sex or all this so much more sex than they ever had before. Like the sex, the amount of sex is this is not hugely different. It's the quality of it. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and my, 
how would you describe the difference? Like, I'm, you know, how would you summarize the difference between what sex was like on a college campus 25 years ago and what it's like now? So uh, if you, if you measure by intercourse, which is how we've traditionally measured number of sexual partners, then our, today's college students have no more sexual partners than their parents did at their age. They look more like the baby boomers than they do Gen Xers. Gen Xers had slightly more sexual partners, but it's certainly, it, it's, it's, there are, there's not an incredible amount of sexual activity happening on campus. And similarly, when they get together, they usually do it in these kind of staged ways with ascending intimacy that will be recognizable to anyone who's been sexually active, right? So, you know, first they kiss someone and then there's the groping and the getting horizontal and the clothes come off in a pretty predictable way and so on. Um, but what's different is this, the, the sort of frame for the sexual activity. So if, uh, if 30 years ago the idea was that you were supposed to be exploring a possible romantic relationship, then today the frame for it is the opposite. That you are specifically not exploring a romantic relationship. That instead, what you're doing is only having this kind of, um, what they would say, emotionless or meaningless sexual encounter just for the pure sake of it. And so it's not that the behavior is that, that different, but the frame for it is really different. And that frame is really um, difficult for the majority of students to feel comfortable with. Yeah, it's not really what they want, is it? No. Um, and it's hard for them when they think that, when they, it's hard for them to enact. Uh, it's hard for them to feel like, they are somehow, they feel like they're broken because they, they aren't comfortable with emotionless or meaningless sex. Uh, and they often, they don't have emotionless or meaningless experiences because as I like to say, they're bags of chemistry. We're all bags of chemistry and we're having feelings all the time. And um, it's impossible, right? To do almost anything without having feelings. So of course they end up having feelings and then they feel like there's something wrong with them because they can't, uh, they can't seem to live up to the expectation. Because the expectation is, this is just for fun. Like, it's almost like the Bob Seger song. I used her, she used me, and neither one cared. We were getting our share. Yeah. Um, like, it, it, but that's the ideal, right? The ideal is that this doesn't mean anything to either of us. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so if people start to have feelings for one another, then they have to go through this really difficult transition period where they um, slowly and carefully and bravely start to reveal to one another that they like each other. And, uh, it doesn't often, it doesn't work all the time. You know, it's, it's, to me, it feels, I mean, I know I'm old fashioned as hell, but you know, I work with college students all the time and sometimes I almost have to apologize to them and say like, I hate to put it this way, but it feels to me like almost like a recipe, um, like for brownies that if you put <laughs> the ingredients together in the wrong order, it won't, it won't come out very well. It won't taste very well. And like the idea that you start out by having meaningless sacks and then maybe at some point as you're putting back on your clothes, you go like, wow, she seems like a neat person. Maybe we should go have breakfast. And then you start to try to build the relationship on the other side of that sexual intimacy. It feels like that's not going to work so good. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm actually less pessimistic about it. Like, um, you know, it, let's call them the olden days. In the olden days, right, two people would get together and um, the premise would be that this was 
for some sort of romantic reason. Um, but just like in hookup culture, those people could have been lying about that, right? So, so one of those people might have only wanted sex, but they had to pretend like they were interested romantically in order to kind of do this dance, right? Go through this script. And so I, I don't think the problem is so much that there is a frame for it. Um, it, it it's it's, or it's, it's this particular frame for it. It's this idea, first of all, that you can, you're only allowed to want one thing. So there, it's, it's a lack of diversity in your options, right? Um, and this feeling of shame, if you want anything other than what hookup culture tells you you should want. And then it's the ways in which the, the, the care, carefreeness of, of sexuality in college actually translates into carelessness. And, and by that, I mean both um, like sort of unconsidered sexuality, but also uh, sexuality that is not characterized by any kind of care. Or kindness. Or kindness. Yeah, when I heard you talk to the, the students at USC, that was the thing that struck me the most. Yeah. Because there is an unkindness to the way that these guys deal with each other sexually, it seems like. Yeah, it's like all rules of basic human uh, courtesy are lifted once sex becomes involved. Uh, which is or rever reversed actually like I need to I need to go out of my way to let you know I don't care about you yeah yeah <laughs> which isn't gonna feel good even if sex isn't involved so it's just not pleasant for people to be treated that way so so in your book, you describe kind of the the hookup script. Like this is what you you know you 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 get you get your battle paint on, or you get you get you get your you get dressed up a certain way. You go to a party, the women dance, the men come up behind them and rub up against them like animals, and that's how you and that's how the is that how the selection happens? <laughs> that's how a lot of hookups happen. Is at parties with dancing. Um, it, the students were really. Um, <laughs> they told this story about uh, women dancing in a circle, men standing on the outskirts, um, choosing a woman to come up behind, and then women not necessarily knowing who was behind them. Uh, and so then looking across the circles of their girlfriends to get some indication as to whether or not the guy behind her was someone she wanted to be seen grinding with. Uh, because it's very status, it's very status oriented, right? It's very status oriented. So, is this person hot enough? Is he quote unquote hookup worthy? And so, women had these various uh, hand signals that they had agreed upon. And the reason women don't just turn around and look is because uh, turning around is it risks escalating the hookup. Because once you've turned around, then you're front to front, um, and you're throwing your arms around him. He's throwing his arms around you. And kissing is kind of imminent. So, so there's this, this moment where a woman would say, you know, here I am like grinding against someone who, and I don't even know who they are. That's <laughs> Which, so weird. Cause I, I remember in college, like trying to figure out where certain women would be at a party. Like w this is the woman I'm interested in. So I'm stalking her mm -hmm. and I want to show up at the party where she's at and try to look cool in front of her. Yeah. This is like the opposite of that. <laughs> well, no, I think they're doing a lot of that. Like, I think there's a lot of talk um, as, as parties approach about, as party nights approach as to where, who is going to be and who okay. one wants to hook up with and all of that. Um, 
But then once they get there, they have to pretend like they don't really care. <laughs> and it's like it's an accident that you happen yeah. to like choose my yeah. ass to grind on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so and then there's the drinking, right? Like they're the, the, the drinking is more than just a social lubricant in this situation, isn't it? Yeah, I think that was one of the most interesting things my students told me is that symbolically the meaning of drunken sex is the opposite of the meaning of sober sex. So uh, they would talk in these hushed tones about sober sex as being deeply meaningful and significant. It meant that two people really liked one another. And drunk sex was completely the opposite of that. Drunken sex was, um, that's how students knew, or that's how students tried to establish that the sex that happened didn't mean anything, that it was simply just a drunken accident, uh, which it wasn't always, right? But symbolically speaking, uh, that's one of the reasons why hookups are almost always drunken. It's because they can't be sober. Because once they're sober, they're not just hookups anymore. Oh, so alcohol sort of gives me the covering of, I, like, this doesn't mean anything because I was drunk. Yeah, because students, like everybody else in America, knows. They know that sex is often incredibly meaningful, incredibly emotional. So... How do you communicate to one another that in this case it wasn't? Just in this case, right? In this specific case, the normal rules of sex don't apply. And alcohol is one way in which they did that. Are there other ways? Oh, yeah. They have all kinds of tricks for how to... I mean, if you, if you think about it, it's, it's a pretty challenging interpersonal task for a whole community to perform meaningless sexuality. It's not automatic because of course they're having feelings and of course they know sex is often very meaningful and 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 in practice they have to pick each other, right? <laughs> they aren't just collapsing into a pile, right? Two people pick each other. They each pick each other and so that sort of threatens to uh, undermine this idea that it didn't mean anything. There must be some reason I chose you. Right. But, um, or you chose me. And that's really threatening to this idea that it really wasn't about that person at all. And so they have a lot of strategies. So being drunk is one way to box sec the sexual activity into the category of meaninglessness. Uh, they also uh, avoid tenderness. So during the actual sexual encounter, um, they it's, it's, it, it's supposed to be hot, right? Forceful, lustful, um, but it can't be tender. And so the things that we do together when we're being sexual in a tender way are all off script. So, you know, no gazing and no caressing, um, no gentle kissing, all that kind of stuff is no, is, no ask, no asking. How does this feel to you? Right. Nothing that looks like, like you're too concerned with or caring about the other person, which is really dangerous. Um, so, oh my gosh, when, when my students talk to me about the sex that they're having, you know, it's funny because their bodies are so beautiful and you think like, oh, this, and then they start talking about it. It sounds horrible. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go back there and have sex with any of them <laughs> the, the, because it just sounds terrible. Yeah. And I actually think bad sex is, is fine. It, because <laughs> bad sex is fine. They, they, fifty percent of them are virgins when they get to college. You know, they're not supposed to be having great sex. They're, they're like sitting down at the piano for the first time, plunking out "Twinkle Twinkle Little Star." They are not playing Mozart. And there's, you know, there's, there's no reason why we should be expecting them to, to be doing something like that. Um, 
So I don't mind the bad sex, but I do mind the sex that is uh, that is sort of discourteous and the sex that verges on cruel and dismissive and that that those problems I do mind. And then that no, that, I think that's really I, th- I think that's really true because you know as a married person, like my wife and I look back on the sex we had when we first got married. Are you still there? Yeah. Yeah. We look back on that sex and go like, oh, you know, we thought that was good. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't know any better because we hadn't figured each other out and we didn't have good communication that way. But back then we thought it was good Yeah. because it was still nice. Yeah. And there was still an effort to make the other person feel loved and cared for. And so that's the weird thing. Like, I, like it's not sort of that I'm saying that they're technically so bad. It's just that it sound, they're practicing having sex with someone that they don't care about. And I, and I always say to them, I don't think that's something you want to get good at. <laughs> right. And I do worry about that, that um, perfecting the art of suppressing all the emotion you might feel for someone you're being sexual with might become a habit that's hard to break. I, I, I'm convinced that it is just yeah. because... Sometimes when you talk to them, having made the transitions into relationship-oriented sex, the the thing that's most interesting to me is, is that I feel like they can have sex very easily, but they can't talk about it very easily at all. And I, I mean, maybe people have never been able to talk about sex easily, um, but it feels like I would have thought that as we were moving along as a civilization, that talking about sex was going to get easier. But what I find is that among young people they don't they struggle very much to talk about sex except in this kind of beer ad <laughs> yeah man kind of way um you, you know it's funny because even i mean i've been talking about sexuality for 20 years and i'm really good at it like i can talk about sex in a way that it seems completely natural and um you know unfraught with any sort of moral issues or shame or or anything like that and and yet it's it's still difficult even for me interpersonally to talk about sex in that way and i think it's because we just don't have a language that doesn't feel wrong and in intimate in intimate encounters we have a scientific language we have a humorous language and we have a violent language you know so we can talk about you know penises and schlongs and cocks right but we we don't have a word for body, our body parts and our actions for the most part that is kind and gentle and thoughtful and uh, respectful. And so I think it's, I think we don't give ourselves the link. We just don't have the language to do it. Yeah. That, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because when you were talking to the USC students um, about, about American hookup culture, the thing that kept as, as, as a humanist chaplain sitting in the back, the thing that kept striking me was none of the religious groups on this campus are going to be able to teach their or, or teach or create a conversation among their young people where they can learn that that fourth language, you mm-hmm. know, that that language of tenderness, because they're not allowed to admit that they're having sex before they get married. Yeah. I mean, they, they are, but they're not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. And, and, and then there are the fraternities and the sororities, which are the, like the nightmare to me of all American college campuses, because they are this weird bastion of both alcohol and 
conquest oriented sexuality sort of mixed together. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so there they're talking about it, but not in a way that ha- is connected to any kind of human value. And it strikes me that that's where secular humanism maybe has its competitive advantage because we can talk about value oriented sex, sex that is about loving relationships and justice and care and equality while at the same time admitting that we actually do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's desperately needed in our society. And that was one of the things that struck me so much about doing this research is the extent to which students, both male and female, had internalized the idea that sexual liberation was about winning a competition. It was about somehow you know, beating somebody else, coming out on top, uh, to, 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 to being highly use, ranked, being highly it, ranked. Yeah. And to, you know, in, in, there's some innuendo in there too, right. Coming out on top. Right? So like, you know, get be doing the fucking and not getting fucked. Right. So do we even have a model of sexuality in America that doesn't involve a winner and a loser? Yeah. That's so interesting because I do talk to these guys and they do not talk about being amazing lovers. Like when I was a kid growing up, I was, I remember like, you know, sneaking Cosmo magazines because I wanted to read like what the women defined as a good lover. Mm-hmm. Cause, cause like I had this dream that I would be the fabulous lover that everyone would be like, Oh my gosh, have you been with him? He's amazing. <laughs> um, but there, but, but, it, and, and, you know, that was its own competitive thing, but it was like trying to compete to be the nicest guy, the guy that all the girls liked. Mm-hmm. This does not feel like this is that competition. These guys are not talking about how they can make the girls feel great. No, not not the men who are playing this game the hardest. I mean, there are men like that out there, but... Uh... And there are men that really uh, work on and enjoy giving women sexual pleasure, but they are not uh, the dominant men on campus who are controlling the culture and winning in this status hierarchy. And that is not, and, and the conversation that's happening on campus, campuses, people aren't passing notes to each other about how to give pleasure. No, I mean, the, the whole point of hookup culture, if, if you're talking about this sort of um, men at the top of the hierarchy, so I, these guys, the whole point is to impress their male friends. It, their audience isn't women. Their audience is other men. And so giving women pleasure is, it, it's at best irrelevant to what they're trying to do. Who, who's the women's audience? Men. <laughs> oh, 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 I thought you were going to say, yeah, they're trying to impress their girlfriends. But they're not. Um, there's definitely some of that going on because they have internalized this masculine approach to sexuality. So women will go back to their girlfriends and say, you'll never believe who I got last night. Um, and they'll also be crass and, and, and talk down about people they hooked up with if they think um, that'll make them look cool in front of their friends. But um, they are also following a hookup script that tells them that the most important thing they need to do in sexuality is to be a sexual object for men to be, um, sexy, not necessarily sexual, but sexy for men. And, um, and, 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 and then satisfy his sexual drive. And so the script is all about men's sexualness and women's sexiness. 
and then satisfying men's sexualness, both with her appearance and her behavior. And so that's why he gets so many more orgasms is because her sexualness is not really present as a concept in, in the hookup much of the time. And, and why does she submit to this? There's lots of reasons. I mean, part of it is just in the same way that, look, it, it's, it's important to be a culturally competent member of our societies. And for better or worse, women's ability to be sexy and men's ability to impress other men are both really important skills to have in America. We don't have to like it, but it's true, right? So hookup culture becomes a, a learning ground, right? It's a place where both men and women are figuring out how to do what they're supposed to do to get by. Um, and even if we don't like the roles women and men are supposed to play and the fact that they're both looking to men as arbiters of their behavior, it can still feel good to get good at something. Even, even, if it's, even if it's self-oppression, it can feel good to get good at something. Um, they're having a lot of pleasure um, just trying new things and learning new skills. So a lot of the pleasure in hookup culture is like, um, I've never done the thing, and now I did the thing. I did it. <laughs> I did the thing. Or, you know, I tried this new technique, and I'm better at blowjobs than ever. <laughs> um, there's a lot of pleasure to be had in it, but but it's still... Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. Martin Sigelman has this, um, you know, the five things that people need to flourish, and one of them is accomplishment. Like yeah. the idea of just being good at something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And being good at something, you know, is important um, as you move forward in life. And so, so unfortunately, it's like all of America's sins play out on the field of hookup culture. And that includes um, the way in which we learn to occupy our unequal spaces in this country. So men... Yeah. So, so, so in a sense, a woman's like, I'm really good at being used or at being, at uh -huh. being chosen to be used. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, <sighs> yeah. And it's amazing how terrified women are of not being judged as sexy by their male peers. It's, they are, it's really, I mean, they talk about it as this existential threat to their value as a human being. Um, one woman said that if she, she, she felt like if men didn't find her attractive, she was nothing. Um, and these are, and these are, these are bright women being educated at America's finest university. I mean, these are not, yeah. you know, working class or lower, lower class people that are like, this is all I have to trade on. These women have a lot more to trade on. Yeah. And yet it gets reduced to this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, here's. That's go the ahead, story that Barbie tells us so well, right? Is that you can be anything you want to be as long as you're also sexy while you do it. So, yeah, okay, so you're breaking my heart at this moment. And I'm wondering if during your research, did you did you ever just want to turn off the microphone, put down your pad and say, now listen, honey, let me tell you something. Did you, I mean, if you, if you were going to pastorally care for these young people, yeah. What would you, t what would you tell them? Well, that's an interesting thing about the research method I used because, um, what I did was I, I had these, each, each, each of these students I had in the class. So it was three different classes and, uh, I, I asked them to write basically diaries about the, their experiences with sex and dating on campus for a full semester of their first year. Um, another way of putting it is I, I trained them to be 
autoethnographers, you know, doing participant observation of their own lives. And I sent them out into the world in these clusters and got them to talk about what was happening. Um, they were, but they had a relationship with me this entire period of time. So we did talk a lot about sexuality in general and what they were experiencing and, and the social norms. They were, they were being educated about, about sexuality in America at the same time that they were doing research on their own sexual cultures. So they weren't completely naive subjects, uh, which is it's an interesting paradox because they ended up being both subject, research subject and researcher at the same time. And, and you weren't simply a researcher either. You were also in a kind of a teaching role. Teacher and mentor, right? So, right. Um, yeah, it, 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 I th I'm thinking more about this research method all the time because by most, um, you know, scientific method measures, it's not good. But in other ways, I felt like it was really, it got just incredibly useful data because the students became increasingly um, increasingly knowledgeable and and sophisticated about their own experiences as the semester went on, and it, it was it gave them the ability to see their experiences with much more clarity and nuance and insight, I think, than they would have otherwise. And since we already had a lot of really great data on hookup culture, I didn't feel like we needed the you know representative, um, unbiased you know, kind of positivistic, even if that's possible, uh, data that we already had. No, I actually thought that was what was most impressive about your book was that I thought that you got young people talking to you in a way that they only talk to somebody who they think actually cares about them. Yeah. And, and my experience at, with college students is, is that you know I'm a I'm a bald-headed 54-year-old man, married man who walks onto the campus and I can get kids to talk to me about anything simply by asking with a clear-eyed look that says I really do care about you. Um, and I find that they they'll often say to me no one's ever asked me that question. Yeah. And you know, you're asking like why are you studying what you're studying? Or what do you like about that girl? Or, you know, what are you afraid of? And it's, it's frightening to me how you can go through four years of college and not necessarily ever get stopped and asked, how are you doing? How's this whole thing impacting you? Yeah, I mean, it's stunning, right? I tell these, fr these freshmen, these first year students on the first day of their class with me, they've never met me before. Um, I want you to basically submit a diary to me about your experiences with sex on campus all semester long. Um, can you bring in a consent form two days from now? <laughs> and 101 of the 110 people I asked said, okay, I'll do that. <laughs> it's pretty stunning, right? And it suggests that they really, they really want to tell their stories. They really, they really want that. And when somebody just offers to listen, even someone they barely know, they're game. Well, yeah, I, I will say, having been in your presence, that you communicate, though, warmth. Like, you communicate, I care. You, I mean, you have to know that. You have to know that. <laughs> that that they, they encounter 20 different professors 
you know, and you have to know that you're on the high end of the spectrum in terms of actually communicating. I, I really do care what happens to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, then as we went the rest of the semester and I became closer to them and they, they, they came to trust me more and more. And, you know, a lot of times they didn't start out with their most harrowing stories, but they often got there eventually. Um, and so, and they, and yeah, so I think that the, the sort of mini longitudinal part was really important because a lot of times their first few journal entries would be pretty, um, almost like trite, you know, like they're, they're just parroting the, the, the discourse about sexuality that they have been hearing. Um, you know, that there'd be young women saying something like, I, I can be, I'm just as, women are just as sexual as men and I can do anything I want. And the way to get liberation is to treat men like men treat women. And, and there'll be very, there'd be a lot of bravado in a lot of their stories. And then over the course of the semester, as they started having experiences and reflecting on them, a lot of times these narratives we get about our lives break down and then we're stuck trying to figure out how, what's the disjuncture between what I thought I was supposed to feel and what I actually feel and how do I make sense of that? And being able to watch them do that over time, I think was really, really valuable. Oh yeah. By the end of the book, you're quoting the same students that you quoted in the beginning that are going like, this is awesome. I'm getting so much and it's great. You know, and the end going like, I don't know, this doesn't really work for me. I don't, I feel lonely. Yeah. <laughs> it's this strange there was this longitude and, and you know the one thing i feel like this conversation we're not doing i'm not doing a very good job of is i mean probably a lot of things but it, if you listen to this it sounds like the women are victimized and the men are you know getting what they want out of this and if there's anything i got from your book it was that the men all, although they get different things than the women they're not necessarily satisfied with how this thing is working for them either no, I mean, about 15% of students are super happy with it. And the, that includes both men and women in that 15%. But the rest of the students are uh, ambivalent at best about what they're experiencing. And if men were often disappointed or frustrated, women were often disgusted or traumatized. So it was a matter of degree. But it certainly isn't the case that men love it and women hate it. Not by a long shot. But it is harder on the women. It's harder on the women. It's harder on people of color. It's harder on working class students. It's harder on the disabled and people who aren't conventionally attractive. Um, it's harder on anyone who sort of occupies a lower status position in our society because all of those hierarchies are powerfully shaping the erotic marketplace and, and the status hierarchies on campus as well. And, you know, we haven't even touched on this, the, the way in which this melds into the amount of women that are getting sexually assaulted on campuses, but there's obviously a clear connection. Yeah. I mean, once you've decided that you're not supposed to care about the person you're being sexual with, then, um, you start, you know, pushing up pretty close towards the line of like, it's okay for me to be uncaring. It's okay for me to be discourteous. Maybe it's okay for me to be cruel. And then, then it's easy to suddenly be criminal. Um, once we've decided that actually caring about the person we're with is off script, then carelessness turns into criminality pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe the last thing 
I, 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 I mean, on this particular subject that I wanted to ask you in particular was, I feel like, and, and, and I feel like women in college right now get a message from their parents, from their professors, from, from the business community that says relationships are something you put, like, don't let that slow you down while you're studying. Like, don't get into a relationship. Um, Particularly as they get to junior and senior year, I see students avoiding entanglements because they're like, well, I might want to go to graduate school and I don't want to be, you know, we, the two of us don't want to, I don't want to be in a situation where I have to compromise anything for another person. Do you feel like that contribute, like this sense of relationships or something that you do once you're established in your career? Do you think that contributes to the sense of like, so this stuff needs to be meaningless because I don't want to get tied down? That's definitely something you hear a lot from class-privileged men and women who do see themselves having this long educational trajectory and this intense occupational um, career. So you do hear that a lot. It's funny because it's funny for a couple of reasons. One is because it clashes with what they actually in their hearts want because they'll st- still three quarters of them, both men and women will say that they wish they had a boyfriend or girlfriend. Right. Um, I, I mean, they're, and they're at that age where that makes sense. Like biologically, it makes sense that they should want a pair bond. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's a little funny to me that so many of us think that pair bonding, like, like this, what you might call premarital monogamous relationships are, are, are what students are naturally inclined to do because we no no people didn't do that in american history until the 50s nobody did that until the 50s and that's that was called going steady and there was no premarital monogamy before the 50s right um there was no monogamy of any kind and so it, this is a kind of a new thing but what what we've got right is this situation where we wait 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 wait, to, wait back back me up though like what was there before the 50s like there was nothing and then you got monogamous then you got married. Yeah. Right. That's so. what I mean. Like, <laughs> yeah. But what all I'm saying is, is like, there was this sort of thing where you got to a certain age and, and, and there was, this was the time to partner. This was yeah, the time but, to get sexual with one person. But the, and the fifties, you know, is, is a good example of a decade in which uh, people did marry around 19, 20 years old. The primary reason they did that was because there was this incredible, we're pushing women out of the workforce back into marriage because women were afraid they'd end up alone because so many men had died in World War II and there weren't enough men going around. And because premarital monogamy led to pregnancy. And so people were getting married when they got pregnant. But that that age of marriage was an incredible dip from, I mean, from in historical perspective. Like even b- before that, pe- people were not getting married that early. They were getting married closer to 25 years old. So um, this idea that 19-year-olds should be in little monogamous relationships is actually, I just think it's important to recognize that that's a new idea and it's certainly not a historical or biological universal at all that's good for me to hear because you just schooled me i'm like okay (laughs) let me let me okay let me i didn't i did that i thought that way Mm -hmm. i'm one of those people that doesn't recognize that Um, and, and also you know monogamous committed relationships are not safe I mean, that's what the, the feminists of the 1970s tried so hard to teach us that, you know, intimate partner abuse and 
spousal homicide and marital rape. I mean, there's nothing about being in a relationship that protects you. I mean, I think that... Oh, no, that, that, I, that's not what I was suggesting, that, that it was somehow safer for women or, or for men. Is, is I, was just, I, I was sort of thinking that people want, like they want to have a partner. They want to have somebody who cares about them. They want to have somebody to share their day with, even when they're 21 or 22 or 23. And the idea that we say like, listen, don't want that until you're 30, if you yeah. want it at all, that's what seems weird to me. Yeah, um, no, I think that, that you're right. And there's the study that found that I think it was two thirds of women or two thirds of young people believe that love brainwashes women or that it might brainwash women, that love is da a dangerous emotion to have for, for women. A threat to their independence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we de I mean, I think we should be talking a little bit about capitalism here. And the role that capitalist imperatives um, are playing in shaping people's ideas about who, who it is valuable to be in, in American society. And certainly someone who cares about other people is, is not, um, it, it threatens capitalist values. Yeah. Because we're, we're all supposed to be investing in ourselves as, as cogs to be entered into that machine. Um, who will put work before family because um, that helps uh, the capitalists, right? Extract value from us. And no, I mean, as you know, at USC, I feel subversive all the time just because I'm selling this idea of measuring your life by your relationships rather mm -hmm. than by your status and power. Mm -hmm. And that feels hugely subversive there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but, but it also, I, I, you know, it also feels like it's not just how you measure yourself, but it's also how you measure the value of the other person. Mm -hmm. And so I watch people and what they're, you know, again, like this whole, like who's hot, mm -hmm. the, the hotness has nothing to do with who's kind, who's mm -hmm. funny. Or who's good in bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah. It's, it's, it's true. And, and, and the weird thing is, is that a lot of times I want to say to students, you know, the funny thing is, is when I meet 30 and 40 year olds who have made it really big in the workplace, what they often tell me is, damn, I can't find anybody. I don't know where to meet. Any Everybody's got so much baggage. Everybody's so, everybody's so unavailable. And I thought like, yeah, there was this time in your life when you were surrounded by people who were about as smart as you were, who came from similar backgrounds. Um, and they were all living within a mile of you and they were grouped according to interest. <laughs> and, and this was the the, the 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 best situation that you ever had to choose friends and potentially romantic partners and you were told don't like don't really invest in these relationships just mm -hmm. use these people to advance your career yeah it's a very strange message yeah so so i don't even know how to like like i'm really impressed with what you learned and what you figured out. And I mean, I've, I, I've recommended your book to so many people in the last month. Um, cause anybody that I think has kids or that is working with young people or is a young person. I mean, my college students read the book and they, they found a lot in there that sort of gave them permission to think differently. Good. Um, and so like, I think what you're doing is hugely important. I guess my question is, do you feel at all evangelical about it in the sense of, do you feel like you have a message that you want to get to young people that you're like, we need to, we need to communicate this to them. <laughs> uh, is, is there something that we need to be saying to our young people? Yeah. I mean, 
There, there's lots of messages I want to get across to lots of different audiences, but to young people, well, to people everywhere, I guess, like I, I think it's so important for us to, okay, to back up and make it, make it sort of as, as abstract in a way that I think is useful. I think a lot about this, this idea of sexual empowerment. And it's something that students talk about all the time, um, and that they want to be sexually empowered, that they want to feel sexually empowered. And I find it so troubling because power is about somebody having something that somebody else doesn't have, right? Power is about being able to exert your influence over other people in a way that is not reciprocal. Um, so power, is, is, is power really what we should be aiming for in sexuality? <laughs> is, is, the, is the only way to not be disempowered, to have power over other people, right? I find it really troubling. And what I'd really like to see happen in America, and certainly on college campuses, is I'd like us to be able to theorize um, a healthy and happy sexuality that is not about power at all. Uh, what would it be about? Um, I think it would be about about connecting connecting truly with yourself and with others. So it would be about using sexuality as a platform on which to to discover and and to have 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 pleasure in life um, of all kinds. But but it, it's, as long as we continue to think about sexuality as something that is competitive and status oriented, we're never going to get there. See, it's interesting because I get that explore and pleasure thing, um, but there's a part of me that, and, and and again, like I'm really old fashioned, and of course I was 30 years an evangelical Christian, and and, and I'm like some of that stuff you just can't beat out of me. Um, but I still feel like there's something really valuable about connecting sex to love and saying that this is a vehicle to express love to another person. Not just like I'm, I'm in love with you, but to actually say, I want to do something together with you that I think will leave you better for the experience. Like I, I want to give something here. Um, I want, I, I want to seek your best interest. Um, I, 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 I think that when you know, I, I know I sound like an old late, you know, like an, an old, like crazy person when I say like, I don't, I think it's dangerous when we separate sex from love <laughs> and, 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 you know, but I, and by that, I, I'm not talking about necessarily monogamy. I'm not talking about, um, necessarily that there's no such thing as casual sex, but like when I sit on a bus next to, a person who's had a rough day and they, and I, and I say, Hey, how's it going? And they start to talk to me about what's going on in their life. I'm not committed to them for a lifetime. They're not the only person I care about. I'm not being unfaithful to my life, but I love that person in that moment. I want, I want to give them something. And so like, that's a casual social encounter, but it's still, there's still an element to it where I feel responsible to care for that person. And I sort of feel like we need to teach people that even, even casual sex, there needs to be an element of giving involved. There needs to be an element of, 
Are you looking out for the other person's best interest? Are they in a position to enjoy this? Are they in a, is, is this going to be not just as, will this work for you, but will this work for them? Yeah. And I, I usually use the word care to, to describe that. Um, and, and I think when I mean, when I say connect, connect with oneself and connect with other people, to me, that in, involves inherently this, this caring about that other person okay, because yeah. you are reaching out to, right. And caring about yourself and really being concerned with what, how you're feeling, what, what you want as well. So I absolutely completely agree with that. And I don't think that, that having an ethic of care and sexuality, it, it all means, um, sex only in the context of love or monogamy. But I do, I, I also think that, so I think that there's a lot we can learn about casual, caring sexual relationships. You know, you can be nice to someone for 15 minutes. It's not impossible. We can learn a lot from the polyamorous who are trying, and the, and the open relationship people who are trying to theorize this. Uh, but I think we also, you know, we, I think we need to be careful not to put um, monogamy into this old-fashioned basket that seems that seems problematic. And in a way, I think that people can choose to be caring with their sexual relationships and then choose because of love and because of a desire to really invest in one person to restrict their sexuality to, to that one context as well as a way of saying, um, this is part of how we're going to care for and nurture our, our meaningful relationship. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know you come up with that statistic, 70% of them want to be in a relationship, college yeah. students. Mm-hmm. And what I find is, is that, you know, I, I, I everybody's all excited about polyamory and this and that and, you know, open marriages and things like that. And I, and I'm okay with it. Like I, I, in theory, I don't have a problem with it. I'm actually much more okay with open marriage than I am with polyamory because at least I've seen open marriages work. Mm-hmm. I'm still waiting to meet somebody who tells me about having been in a polyamorous relationship over a long period of time in which children were raised that it worked out. I, I just have, it's not that I don't think it's possible. I've just never met anybody yet. I mean, I guess I, I'm committed to the idea that any kind of sexual relationship or way of relating sexually that, that is consented to by people uh, is probably can be healthy and functional if we can strip out of it all of the things that poison these relationships. But, but the things that poison polyamory are the same things that poison monogamy and the same thing that, that poison um, all kinds of other sexual relationships. It's, it's gender inequality. It's inability to communicate. It's competitive attitudes, attitudes towards sexuality. It's, um, it's racism and classism and all that ugly stuff that um, it, it, it's poisoning all of our all of our relationships. And so I think we need, it's more important to work on trying to develop an ethic of, of care and around sexuality that, that will sort of enable us to make better choices and also um, relate in ways that are functional for us than it is to pick a particular kind of sexual relationship that will somehow be free from all of these problems <laughs> yeah. magically, right? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I just, I just always feel like if it's like diving, like it just, the degree of difficulty is hard enough Yeah. <laughs> um, right. on, on that simple front dive. When you add like three twists and you're doing it in synchronicity with three other people, it just feels like, who are you trying to kid? And so for me, it's just, a, it's just about a human limitation where in theory, I believe all those things, but 
in theory, I believe that if you, I could flap my arms fast enough, maybe I could fly. But I, I just, I, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time worrying about that because like within the realm of my human limitations, that doesn't really seem like a good investment of energy. Theoretically, yeah. it's possible, but my gosh, really? I, I'm, I'm just trying to walk around. I guess I, I guess I disagree with that. I think that um, humans are really diverse and they have different needs at different times of their lives and they have different, they have different desires and interests. And so I think that polyamory probably is perfect for some people at some, in some times of their lives, but it would have to be a very particular kind of person, right? Someone who thrives on the drama of managing, you know, three or three different partners at once. And and again, like maybe somebody who doesn't want to raise kids. Like there are, yeah, but maybe not. But there are people who like want to do the difficult dives, who thrive on the difficult dives, who, who will push themselves to do more and more difficult dives. You know, there are people that that really do thrive under those conditions. And so I think that that's, that's possible. And I don't don't want to, and I don't want to be an ass because you know, you're, you're so right when you say about different periods in, in, in time and everything and different times in your life. I mean, I guess one of the things is like, since we started out talking about college kids, sometimes I feel like many of the college kids need a basic course in like how to hold somebody's hand yes, and, they do. and how to write a love letter yes. and how that, 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 that they're already being exposed to all this, you know, on these college campuses that are like the open, the polyamorous club and the bondage and sec- bondage club and all this stuff. And like, I don't have a problem with any of that stuff, but to me, that sounds like stuff you do after you've mastered the basics. Yeah. Um, they need intro classes. <laughs> I really feel it. And, 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 and I mean, that's what I'm evangelistic about is I'm trying to figure out how to get care education. Not, you know, I, like they know how the mechanics of sexuality work, but they don't know how the mechanics of basic human relationships work. Yeah. And I'm trying to figure out how we can create some kind of value laden care education where we sort of say, mm-hmm. hey, here's how you keep eye contact in a conversation. And mm-hmm. here are some things you should ask on a first date that maybe you shouldn't ask, or here's something maybe you shouldn't ask on a first date, but you can ask later on. And here's how you touch somebody, in a, you know, if you want to communicate this or that. And I just don't feel like there's a lot of conversations happening on college campuses where people are passing, you know, they're, they're, they're sharing information about how to love each other. Yeah, in a way, hookup culture is a denial it's a straight up denial that care is part of life. Like it is, it, instead of contending with this fact that relationships are difficult, it's just this um, almost hysterical insistence that it doesn't have to be part of sex. Um, and so students will talk about that relations are, relationships are hard and hookups are easy. And that's this insistence that they should be easy that they shouldn't be complicated, that they're simple. It's so fascinating because to me it is such like a, it is, it's such an obviously untrue fact. <laughs> um, so it does seem like um, hookup culture is just this aggressive denial of, of what's real in their, in their actual lives. And, 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 and the figurative, the, the thunder clouds are, are, I hear them behind you. <laughs> the portent of doom. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, yeah. you know, I know that you're, I, I mean, 
you're a good, so I mean, I know that you're sort of questioning your research method in terms of its objectivity, but I will tell you that I think you painted the picture as well as it could be painted. And I'm, I, I think that there's something, um, political just about describing reality that if you just describe reality well enough, in some ways there is a, um, there, there's a value statement that that's just there that, that if you just say, look at this, if you look at it clearly, you'll know what to do. And I feel like when I read your book, I thought, wow, this is such a clear picture. And my immediate feeling was, I'll, I think I know what we need to do. Um, and it's, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's challenging a culture, an emerging cultural message that says that care should be eliminated from the equation. Yeah. Well, thank and, you. I, I, I really um, I value yeah. my students' contributions so much. And I do think it was exactly what we needed at this point in, um, in our understanding of hookup culture. I agree. All right, so that was my conversation with Lisa Wade. I hope you liked it. I know I talk to people too long. I know I interrupt too much. I know, I know. But hopefully you're getting the sense that I'm genuinely excited about what these people are saying because it genuinely is helping me figure out how to love young people better. And that's really what I want to do. Um, yeah. All right, so that's Lisa Wade. Now, I promised you an Ingersoll quote. Here you go. Robert Ingersoll, Gems Concerning the Holy Bible from Ingersoll the Magnificent. There is no necessity of attacking people. We should combat error. We should hate hypocrisy, but not the hypocrite. Larceny, but not the, not the thief. Superstition, but not its victim. We should do all within our power to inform to educate, and to benefit our fellow men and women. There is no elevating power in hatred. There is no reformation in punishment. The soul grows greater and grander in the air of kindness, in the sunlight of intelligence. Oh, listen to that one again. There is no elevating power in hatred. There is no reformation in punishment. The soul grows greater and grander in the air of kindness, in the sunlight of intelligence. Ah, he knew what he was talking about. Let's go and make it so. See you soon. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.